Ezekiel chapter 20 is where we are again going this morning. As you are turning there, I have a question I want to ask you that is open to any, anyone, uh, men, women, children, to answer. And that is, do you have a favorite story? It doesn't have to be a Bible story. It can be. But do you have a favorite story that you like to hear? Maybe it's one that we are familiar with. Maybe it's one that we're not. But if someone had to ask you, what is your favorite story? What would you say? Who is, who's brave enough to answer? The Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid. All right. Very good. Sorry? Both versions. Both, both versions. <laughs> she clarified in case you were concerned. Yes. Yes, that was called the incriminating list. I, I, I recall. <laughs> That's not a happy story. <laughs> others. Others. Sorry? Oh. One more, maybe. King Arthur. That's a great one. Yeah. Others? Yep. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, that's one of my favorites too. It is, a, it is a story with a lot of meaning, isn't it? We learn a lot in that story. And so it, Israel, what we see in Ezekiel, what we have seen in chapter 20, is that there is a story that Israel's really, really familiar with. It's a story you're familiar with too if you've seen, say, Prince of Egypt or if you've been in church for any length of time. And that is the story of the Exodus. God keeps going back again and again to this story in Ezekiel 20. I think in many ways you could say it is the favorite story of a lot of Israelites. We are 20 chapters in, and God is still laboring, if you can put it that way, with this story to convince Israel of something, right? The ones that are in exile and the ones that are not yet in exile. What is Ezekiel? What is God through Ezekiel trying to convince his people of because they really need it sold to them? It is that they are engaged in idolatry and that they are therefore idolaters and in sin. That this idolatry is so much more horrible than they actually believe. And that is our flesh, isn't it? We, we need to be convinced that our sin is bad. It's the problem that confronted Israel. It's the problem that confronts you and I even today. We are in need because of our flesh, because of our natural ability to be really good attorneys for ourselves and defend ourselves from accusation. It is that God must first convince us that we are sinners and that our sins are really bad. And so let's begin by reading our text for this morning. Chapter 20, verse 33. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness. That should sound familiar. The wilderness of the peoples. And there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge out the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. 
I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am Yahweh, that I am the Lord. This is the word of God, and so again we say, thanks be to God. So judgment language, we've heard it before in Ezekiel. The judgment language of the prophets has probably, if you have a pulse and uh, have been listening at all in, in the last 20 chapters, it's probably caused you to struggle a bit because some parts of it are pretty intense and we're hardly finished yet. If you believe, though, that your sins and that sin itself is, generally speaking, a minor offense against God, texts like this are always going to cause a lot of struggle because they will make God seem easily angered. That's the, oh, the threat when you read a text like this. That you will come away thinking, this God has a short fuse. He's easily angered. Let's go to verse uh, 33, please, at the start of our text this morning. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Now that right there is Exodus language. God promised Moses, you're going to go talk to Pharaoh, and with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, I'll deliver my people. It would have been like quoting lyrics from a song that you knew, or from a story that you knew by heart. Every Israelite would have recognized that language immediately as mosaic deliverance out of Egypt language. With wrath poured out, I will be king over you. I will bring you from, out from the peoples, gather you out of the countries where you are scattered. There it is again, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. God is dealing with His people and especially with their sins because sin is a high offense against an almighty God. A God, by the way, of infinite mercy and goodness and grace. We have the tendency, as I said a moment ago, to minimize our sin because in our flesh we cannot bear its ugliness. You should expect two things to happen in the Christian life with regard to your sin. So if you're a Christian, you should be constantly expecting two things to happen. One is that you look at your sin now and you really hate it. I mean, you really hate it. But another is that you look back, perhaps in the last year, perhaps three years ago, maybe five years ago, maybe ten years ago, and you observe God's goodness and mercy to you and your growth in grace in what we call progressive sanctification. Right? I mean, who among us likes the person they were ten years ago? You probably don't. And it's because when you look back, you recognize that there are things that the Lord has been working on in you and working out of you because He loves you. Because that's one of the ways that the, <laughs> that the Lord gives you His love is to, is to work out of you the things that uh, would otherwise be besetting sins that would continue to hound you. I, I remember once um, I, had, I had taken one of those, whatever they're, Myers-Briggs, INF, LMNOP, you know, t- tests uh, to, to figure out personality. And I got the same results, right? Okay, all right, well, at least we're consistent. So I went in and I, I looked at some of the details of what all that entails. And there were lots of things when I read it, I thought, well, that's, I don't, I'm not seeing that. I don't. I don't know where they're getting that. That's not me. And then I thought about it for a little while, and I was like, oh, wait, but that used to be me. (laughs) That was actually one of the things that was really part of me that I really treasured that was sinful, and God made sure to get rid of it in His mercy to me. And so, at the same time, you should also expect moments 
where you see your sin it's all, in all its ugliness and you are really horrified. And rather than saying, oh, that's, that was just my brain doing something stupid, which is weird. We, we now attribute agency to our brain. Like we used to say the devil made me do it, but now it's my brain made me do it. That's another sermon for another time. But instead, instead of saying, oh, that was my brain making me do the stupid thing, you instead say, oh, Lord, that is me apart from your love, apart from your grace. Uh, that, that, is, that is me apart from loving you and loving neighbor. That's how I act, and it's evil. And it's precisely the thing Israel wasn't saying, precisely the thing Israel wasn't seeing. So there's a running joke often comes up in social media about a thing and I, I confess, I should have looked up the pronunciation before. I just wanted to reference it to you. It's either Goodwin's Law or Godwin's Law. Uh, it often applied to social media conversations. And, and I, think it's, I think it's Godwin. It, Godwin's Law states that if an argument goes on long enough about politics, eventually somebody's going to invoke Adolf Hitler. <laughs> it's just a question of when. All right? Something like that. Something like that is happening in Ezekiel. God is reminding Israel of the Exodus story, right? A fundamental part of their identity, repeated every year at Passover. We were slaves in Egypt. God delivered us out of Pharaoh's hand. Pharaoh was ancient Israel's Hitler. In much the same way that Hitler is emblematic of modern Judaism's Pharaoh. My point is that God is using Egypt language here. You saw it, mighty hand, uh, outstretched arm, etc. So the story is being told, but this time, who is God's hand against? It's against Israel. So this time, Israel is Pharaoh. Israel is playing the Hitler part in the story. They are, they're, they're the ones, Israel needs to be delivered from Israel. They're enslaving themselves with their idols. And God says, verses, verse 35, I will bring you into the wilderness. I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. Go to the next one, please. Just verse 35. Yep. I will bring you into the wilderness. I will enter into judgment with you face to face. That is not good news, right? You, I mean, you could probably pick that up from the tone. If anyone ever says, I want to see God in all His glory, I want to meet God face to face, you should start praying to, for that person because face to face meetings with the Almighty are typically not pleasant experiences. Luther taught that God's Word and God's sacraments were almost like God's clothing, if, if you want to put it that way. He clothes Himself in them, word and sacrament, so that we can then receive Him. In words, in water, in bread, in wine. And Luther said, only a fool would demand an audience with the naked God. God's unmediated, all-consuming glory, which He here promises to Israel, is not good news. He says in verse 37 that they will pass under the rod of His judgment. I will make you pass under the rod. I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. This was a shepherding idiom 
when a shepherd was counting up his flock, not just obtaining numbers, but also condition, a sense of how the sheep were doing, uh, health and, and uh, so on. He would stretch out his rod, just like you might do with a, a pencil in your hand if you're counting up something, and just kind of one, two, three, four, five, and, and so on. Right? And, and the sheep, in that sense, would pass under his rod, and they would start to be separated out. Those who, for example, were healthy, those who were sick. What's the point? God is saying... That he will deal with sinners as a covenant community, yes, bring you into the bond of the covenant, but he's also dealing with them as individuals. And so this very theme continues through the rest of Scripture. Jesus uh, will himself speak of dividing up the sheep and the goats, same kind of idea. There will be those who belong to him, the sheep, those who do not, the goats. And so the, the idea being that those who belong to Christ, those who are His sheep, it's not meant to be a mystery. Some people read a text like that and they think, well then, I, I must be a goat because there's a lot of sin in my life. And, and if, if, you, if you know Jesus and you're repenting of sin, then you are one of His. Jesus desires that His people know Him and that they are known by Him. This is, in fact, what we also get from the Lord in Ezekiel. Verse 38, what's the whole purpose of it? I will purge out the rebels from among them, sheep and goats. Those who transgress against me, I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. This repeated refrain, you've heard me say it again. Man, I'd love to get a word count on repeated refrain just from the Ezekiel sermon series because this one shows up in almost every text that I've preached. Then you will know that I am the Lord. The main problem behind Israel's idolatry was a knowledge of God problem. In fact, all idolatry is built, founded on a misunderstanding of God. In most cases where this idolatry happens, I I would say that the misunderstanding is, uh, well, I would say it fits one of two categories. God is overly harsh, right? God's, God's this brutal meany monster or god is overly careless he's uh just the sort of celestial grandpa who doesn't you know doesn't really have any uh, anger at all just is always just giving out candy all the time israel's problem was that they had begun to view their their covenant status with god as entitlement right oh we are god's people we can do as we please and he won't care and you see then why they're on the receiving end of some pretty intense language I mean, I will purge out the rebels from among you, right? Now that might make you say, when you read a text like this, you're thinking maybe, wow, I mean, good grief. The Lord is really turning it up to 11 here. He's really angry. But certainly what you don't say, you don't read it and say, you know, I think God is kind of passive on the matter of whether or not he's worshiped. Right? I don't, you know, God really doesn't care about these idols much. No, I mean, clearly you, you have to look at a text like this and say, okay, apparently it matters deeply to God who we worship and that we know Him, right? And then they will know. It's the whole purpose of the judgment. And that's often a hard thing, I was going to say, for an unbeliever to understand. It can be a hard thing for Christians to understand if we're honest. Why, why does God demand to be worshipped, and on top of that, promise terrible things if he is not. Why is he so concerned for his own worship and glory? Right? Book of Psalms, 
Longest book in the Bible means the longest book in the Bible is God telling you to praise Him. Apparently, that's really important to Him. Now, the short answer to the question of why is that if God's not concerned for His own glory, neither should you be. That's the short answer. The longer answer is the rest of the sermon. (laughs) Stay tuned. Part of the answer, I think, is found in two parables that I want us to focus on for the rest of the time. And I'm, I'm hoping well enough that you'll see the connection. Both of them are in Matthew. I'm going to begin with Matthew 21, verses 33 through 41. Matthew 21. Jesus says, Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, leased it to tenants, and then he went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Okay? The, vineyard, the, the, the guy who owns the vineyard sends people to gather the fruit. And the tenants, the, the ones who are watching over it for him, took his servants, beat one, killed another, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first. They did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. When the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And the people say, He's a really nice guy. He's going to let it slide. Right? No, they're angry when they hear this story. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. I might have said he's going to come back to the vineyard and manage it himself and never, ever, ever entrust anyone ever again, but fair enough. Here's my point. You don't have to be a Christian to understand the angry response of the crowd. By angry, I mean sort of justly angry. There's an injustice that's happened that's unimaginable. Right? So, so they're going to get what's coming to them. Yeah! Right? And that's what they tell Jesus is going to happen. And Jesus says that they're right. And so, notice what they did not say, though. Again, they didn't say, well, maybe the owner of the vineyard will cut him a break because he's so nice uh, and forgiving. We know that these evil men deserve justice. Why? Well... Because for heaven's sake, they were bearing the name of the owner of the vineyard. It wasn't theirs to, to, to treat so, um, so with such evil. They were caretakers of somebody else's work. They bore the name and the work and the, the emblem, you might say, of the owner of the vineyard. And we walk around so easily presuming that we are created in the image of God. And so we are. Bearing His name. And so we do. And so when we get to a judgment text, like we find a lot of them, like we will see more of them in Ezekiel, I'm going to probably keep going back to uh, Tim Keller's definition of God's wrath that I have found very helpful. God's wrath is His settled opposition against all that which threatens or destroys what He loves. Okay? So, so settled opposition or anger or judgment or... Uh, vengeance against all that which threatens or destroys what he loves. Idolatry, the problem with idolatry and why God hates it that much, that's the connection I'm trying to get you to see. When he told the story of the parable of the vineyard, nobody said, 
you know, if, if he comes and reacts in justice and takes those evil men out, he's really overreacting. So, so why is it that we struggle then with, with God's judgment in the same? We hear, we hear the parable and we say, no, that'd be just if they get what's coming to them. But we don't, we don't want to say the same thing of, of ourselves. Idolatry does something just as vile as in the parable. Idolatry preaches to all of your friends and neighbors, the God of the universe is weak. That's what idolatry does, most fundamentally. It preaches to your friends and neighbors that the God of the universe is weak. When husbands and fathers surrender their vocation, retreat from leading their family, retreat from their church, or from just daily godliness, let's say, they are preaching a sermon that Christianity is weak. When women fall into temptations, I'm going to hit both. When women fall into temptations of gossip and slander, they're preaching a sermon that says God is weak and He has appointed me to be the judge over all of you, to confess all of your sins and to build myself up by comparison. When we lock ourselves away in isolation from the body of Christ for whatever reason, refusing fellowship or interaction, we preach a sermon that says God is weak and He is no match for the stuff that scares me. He's no match for the stuff that scares me. He is not a help. He is not a shield. He is not a refuge. He is little more than a convenience and a privilege of the healthy and the strong. When we fail to speak clearly about the God of all creation and the good design of men and women, we preach a sermon that says God is weak and is not to be trusted. He is not to be taken seriously when he says things that make our wider culture shrink back or get angry. When men or women find themselves in the throes of addiction, whether it be alcohol or drugs or pornography, they are preaching a sermon that says God is weak and the impulses of my flesh are far more satisfying than any promise ever uttered by some dead man in Nazareth. And the great sin of our age is that we preach sermons of the weakness of God. Bringing shame upon ourselves and on His name. What Ezekiel has told us again and again and again is that such sermons of idolatry are always temporary proclamations before God Himself steps in and says, that's enough. God Himself steps in and says, no more. My people will not know this weak God. They will know who I am. And I will silence every liar who fashions some imitation of me that will never give life, but will only give death. And so it is that God is not careless when it comes to our sin or His glory. He will be known. He will be worshipped to the very ends of the earth. It's a promise that we pray every day. right? On earth as it is in heaven. But at the same time, there's, a, there's, a, there's another kind of side of this. There's another ditch to fall into here. I also want to address. I said two parables. At the same time, the Lord is also not some grievous taskmaster who's going to crush you out of spite, which is the other trap we fall into. And God be praised. Jesus has a parable for that too. All right. So that's uh, Matthew chapter 25 beginning in verse 24. 
He also had received the one... Oh, sorry, I'm supposed to give you the background. So this is a rather long parable. For the sake of time, I am going to summarize it. That Jesus says this fellow comes, uh, this, this master gives out talents, gives out money, that is, to his servants. Gives one five, one two, and one of them one. He goes away, and then he comes back and takes an accounting. The one who had five, he's made five more. Well done, good and faithful servant. The one who had two has made two more. Well done, good and faithful servant. He also, who had received the one, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. His master answered him, No good and faithful, this is wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to, I would put in brackets, at least. You ought to at least have invested my money with the bankers. At my coming, I should have received what was my own. Take your own. What was my own with interest? So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Cast the worthless servant into the outer of darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus tells this parable, you have good and faithful servants, you have wicked and slothful servants. The problem was, why is the servant wicked? Okay, when the master says, oh, you, so, so this is how you see things, is it, that I reap where I haven't sown? Basically, he's calling his master a liar. And, and that the, the, the master's response is not a confirmation of the lie, it's a rhetorical, oh, is that how you see things? Is that the sort of man that I am? That's my reputation, is it? The problem was the servant believed his master to be an unjust man, which is also a temptation for us connected to idolatry that we will think ourselves in the service of an unjust, harsh taskmaster God. What did the servant do? When he lived under a master who he thought to be that kind of master, he hides. He hides his stuff. He hides what he has. He believes lies about his master, so he hides. Should ring some bells about uh, Genesis 3. And while there are so many today who might, we might say, presume on God's kindness and forgiveness, not taking sin seriously... So they preach false sermons about a false God. There are also those who commit the same sin in the other direction and they believe God to be unpleasable like an abusive parent or a grumpy boss. And this leads to a different kind of idolatry. But it is basically the conclusion, I can't make God happy, so what's the point of trying? I can't live up to what He wants, so why would I waste my time trying to do what He commands? This preaches a sermon that says God is weak because He cannot reach me. Some people He helps. Some people He saves. Some people He forgives. Some He treats like beloved sons, apparently. But I am beyond His help and beyond His reach. He would have to work really hard to get to me. And this can either go the way of the Pharisee who makes even God's love into a case for grief. It's like, It's like, God loves you. Doesn't that make you feel awful, you wretch? (laughs) It's like God's love is now turned into a burden. Jesus died on the cross for you. Don't you feel terrible? 
It's like even the gospel becomes an unbearable word from Sinai. The other direction this can go is that someone might just give up on Christianity altogether. Right? If this God is that unpleasable, then what's the point of trying? And they flee the gaze of a God whose smile they can never earn. And so they preach a sermon that says God is weak. He has love as some kind of theological attribute, but apparently can't love me. Go back to Ezekiel, our text today. The the last verse of it is verse 38. Where God says, I'll purge out the rebels. I'll bring them out of the land, but they won't enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. To all of the lies, God says, I will be known. I will destroy the idols who are false imitators of me. And I will judge the idolaters who preach false sermons about me. Then you will know that I am the Lord. What you find in the Bible is that as God progressively reveals more and more of himself through redemptive history, that, I mean, this is not a big stretch of the brain, that the, the, the latter elements of redemptive history, God's people know more. So you and I can rejoice in the fact that we know more about God than Noah did. We know more about God than Moses did. Because God has revealed more and more as things have gone on. We have information that Noah and Moses didn't have. We've been given Jesus Christ, God Himself, God the Son, the fullest and clearest revelation of all that God is, such that if you want to know what God is like, you start by going to Jesus. Hear His parables. He is not to be trifled with. Because He will be King. Servants who pretend like the vineyard is theirs will face his judgment. He is not to be trifled with, for he will be king. The nations will be glad in him. The Lion of Judah will silence every false sermon, and he will break every idol. He is also the Lamb of God who will heal every wound, who will restore every failure, who will forget every sin, who will welcome in every sinner who confesses faith in His gospel, who is washed at His font, who feasts at His table. And when the Lord speaks through Ezekiel, He says, tell them what? Go back to verse 33. Tell them, I will be king over you. I will. That is a severe word of judgment, but also a severe word of mercy. To the rebel and the sinner and the unbeliever, the Lord says, I will be king. That is a warning. But to all who repent of sin and trust in Jesus Christ, this is the good news to you. He says, I will be king. You won't be. (laughs) That's the good news. You won't be, but I will. The world is on my shoulders, not yours. Right? Miss Dorothy, you and I talked about that at the start of the service. That that the world is on His shoulders, not yours. One of my favorite stories from uh, Martin Luther's life is that his friend Philip Melanchthon struggled a lot with anxiety. And when, when, when Martin would see... Uh, Philip just kind of just tightening up and getting worried about stuff and his face getting all contorted. He would just put a hand on his shoulder and he would say, let Philip cease to rule the world. So Jesus can say, your addictions are mine to crush. The world, the flesh, and the devil are mine to subdue. Your slavery to your sin is a weight around your neck that is mine to break. 
Your obsession with yourself and fame and being seen and being heard and being noticed is mine to pacify. Your insecurities and your fear of being exposed is mine. For your hope is found in a naked, crucified man on a hill in Jerusalem. Your terror of the future and what war may bring is mine to silence because I will be king. And that means anything that holds you in its grip, be it the world, the flesh, or the devil, is mine to conquer and subdue because as I live, declares the Lord God, I will be king over you. And it is not given to you to strongly or mightily believe this. Right? I'm going to go out of here with big faith. Probably not. Because then at least you could boast about that, right? It is given to you to come only with your sin and your fear and your anxiety and your inadequacy and your anger, your regret, insufficiency, all that makes you want to bury all that you have, all that tempts you to rebel and take your life for yourself. The Lord Jesus says, I will put it to death. For as I live, declares the Lord, I will be king. And you will know that I am the Lord. In the name of King Jesus, amen.